Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. My guest today is Hamish King. Hamish is a postdoctoral fellow at uh, Queen Mary University of London. And we will be talking about immunology and specifically about a study that uh, Hamish and his co-authors recently published in Science Immunology. And that is about B cells and B cell states and B cell receptors. A lot of interesting uh, stuff there. So uh, Hamish, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's uh, great to be here. Just to not scare people away, especially those who don't routinely study immunology, uh, let's do a brief recap of the main uh, immunology concept. So maybe let's do a um, quick introduction to the uh, B cells and B cell states and their life cycle. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, B cells 101. And I, I should I should maybe start by saying that I'm only recently arrived in the world of immunology, that uh, my background was in sort of uh, chromatin genomics and uh, epigenetics before this. So I uh, I found it similarly overwhelming when I started into the world of uh, immunology, but I think um, uh, the major things to to think about B cells, I guess, are why they're important. First of all, so um, the major role that B cells play in our immune system is uh, by recognizing foreign pathogens um, and making antibodies to fight them off. And these are one of the major ways that our bodies recognize infection and fight infection and remember it as well um, because some of these B cells are called memory B cells or plasma cells they're two different lineages that can form uh, hang around in the body for up to decades after you might get sick and can be reactivated um, when you get exposed to that a virus or a bacteria again uh, so this is I guess why it's really important to understand how B cells are made and and in particular I'm interested in the genes that control that process and control the selection of these B cells to make uh, a f you know high quality and high affinity antibodies um, so I think that's that's a us into why I think it's also worth touching on how this this happens because this is one of the main things that we uh, try and address in our study and there are two main stages of, of B cell development that are important to sort of separate. And the first occurs in the bone marrow where um, we go from a hematopoietic stem cell to through the B cell commitment to form a mature naive B cell. So that's a little bit of a contradiction in, in terms perhaps. So a naive B cell is, is a B cell that hasn't been exposed to any antigen yet because it's just been derived from the bone marrow. And during that process in the bone marrow, they're, they're making a, a first draft of the antibodies that they can make. So um, the antibody genes, uh, which are sort of all exist in one locus in the genome with the variable uh, diversity genes, um, undergo a recombination process which generates a huge amount of diversity um, before the B cell has even seen uh, an antigen from outside the body. And this can generate, I think, estimates up to 10 to the power of 14 different unique antibody sequences. So when it exits 
the bone marrow for the first time. This naive B cell uh, is able to make an antibody, but it's fairly uh, non-specific. It won't do any uh, do a great job of fighting off any infection because that B cell hasn't seen anything yet. Um, but it has a highly complex background, none the same. So from there, the naive B cell is moving through the body in the blood um, or the, the lymphoid uh, system and is passing through uh, secondary lymphoid organs like uh, lymph nodes, the spleen or the tonsil, uh, which is our system of choice for our study. And when they're passing through these systems, they can be presented with a foreign agent. So this could be part of a virus, it could be part of a bacteria, uh, and the B cells are presented with that from, with some help from uh, T cells and, and other immune cells, like a macrophage, um, and they sort of uh, get a, activated and a signal to undergo this maturation response, and they form something called a germinal center. And in the germinal center, the, the B cells will divide uh, rapidly um, and clonally expand uh, and as they undergo that clonal expansion they can acquire mutations to their antibody genes and sometimes those mutations will be beneficial and will increase the affinity of that antibody to the foreign agent and if that happens the B cells will get uh, a strong signal to proliferate and strong survival signals um, on the other hand, if they get a mutation that introduces a stop codon or a frame shift uh, or other deleterious effects into the antibody genes, they won't receive those same signals and they will apoptose and die. Um, so this is a really important selection process through which the B cells acquire a high affinity towards their, their target um, that they're that they've uh, recognized in some way initially. Uh, and then from there, this can happen many, many times. Um, it's sort of a very iterative process where the, the B cells are cycling back and forth between different parts of the germinal center, uh, which are, the, are these histological structures in the, in the tissue. And uh, at some point they can differentiate from that germinal center and exit to form these memory B cells or plasma cells. And, and that is uh, when they go out and, and do their thing and, and sort of uh, su suppressing the infection. And uh, so does that, does that sort of catch you up, Roman? Do you, uh, did that all make sense? Absolutely, yes. I, I think that was very helpful. And maybe one more concept that is good to understand in order to better understand and appreciate your paper um, is something called antibody class or an isotype so uh, how, how does that work that's a uh, that's a really important point i can't believe i i forgot to mention that so so there's there's two main uh parts of selection that these b cells are going for relating to the antibody genes in the germinal center one which i already talked a little bit about is the these uh, mutations that occur to increase the affinity uh, and this is a process called somatic hypermutation um, the other really important feature of, of the antibody repertoire is the class switch recombination. So uh, when the B cells exit the bone marrow, they will all make the antibody isotype IgM. Uh, IgM and IgD 
typically what naive b-cells will make uh, when they go through uh, the germinal center though they can switch their antibody class from igm to another class of antibody and broadly speaking it would be igg iga or ige and then there are subclasses as well igg 1 2 3 and 4 and iga 1 and 2 and Although most of the uh, focus on antibody research looks at the affinity which is controlled by somatic hypermutation, there have been lots of uh, I, you know, research and studies done in the past that have found a role for the antibody class in dictating the fate and function of a B-cell as well. So whether a B-cell expresses IgM, IgG or IgA potentially could have a major role in the, the differentiation processes that B cell would experience. And after that stage as well, when the B cells are, are secreting antibody into, into the serum, um, there's also important differences in how these classes behave um, biophysically and, and they sort of may target different types of pathogen more efficiently. So IgE is a, typically an anti-parasitic class of antibody well, IgA is uh, most associated with mucosal tissues. Um, so this is an important part of the repertoire that um, although we, we know at the end point how these are functionally important, we don't understand what role, if any, they may play during the process of B-cell development. And also, how should we visualize these um, these different classes? So some, some of them literally look different, uh, so they form different different shapes uh, some don't but what does it what does it mean how do we determine whether an antibody has a class IgA or IgG or IgM so it's encoded by this constant region gene uh, so antibodies are comprised of the variable regions which are what encodes the affinity and specificity and then uh, after that, we have a, a constant region gene, which is a sort of very structural component, which in the context of a B cell can actually be expressed as a membrane bound receptor called the B cell receptor, uh, typically enough. And the isotype of that um, antibody will influence the some of those structural components relating to its transmembrane properties in the context of a B cell. So they might have slightly different cytoplasmic tails of the receptor, uh, which could influence how they signal. Um, and I think that's the most important uh, in the context of our study. But outside of the B cell, when they're secreted, they can also um, multimerize in different ways. So IgM forms quite large. I think pentamers, IgA is a, typically a dimer of two IgA molecules. Um, so they sort of do behave quite differently in different contexts. Okay, so it sounds like you know quite a bit about these B cells and, and antibodies. What were the things that you didn't know and which prompted you to, to do this study? Yeah, it's a really good question. So a lot of, we do know a lot about B cells that have been studied for you know quite a long time. Um, and, and these germinal centers themselves have, were first observed histologically you know, over 150 years ago. Um, but they're quite a hard thing to study in the context of human immunology. Uh, well, mouse models have really taught us a huge amount about these processes, 
there's a few key aspects that mean that we can't translate findings from mouse directly to humans necessarily all the time, which were some of the major motivations for doing this study. So uh, just for example, um, the, the definition of different B cell populations by the cell surface markers is sort of very, you know, in some contexts, very different between mouse and human. So just the, uh, the B cell identities themselves are not immediately transferable, at least at first glance. Um, but it, for us, who were really interested in these questions relating to antibody class and function, uh, a, a major uh, caveat of mouse studies is that they actually have a different number of antibody isotypes than we do. Um, they lack one of the, the different one of the IgA uh, subset subclasses, for example. Is that because they lack uh, one of the genes? That are needed for that subclass. Exactly. There's there's been a throughout evolution a, a duplication event or a delete. Actually, I think it might have been a deletion of it. I'm not sure, but there has been a throughout evolution a, a duplication or deletion of one of the genes that has meant that it's it's no longer there in mouse and we and we have it as well. Um, and the other important uh, aspect of it as well that it's well known that the cytokines that regulate the selection of these different classes differ as well between mouse and humans. So for us who wanted to know, learn more about the potential importance of these subclasses to B-cell biology, uh, a, a mouse study was, was not going to cut it. We really had to look in, in vivo as much as possible. And to do that, we thought that the single cell approaches were the best way to do this. Right. So so you ruled out uh, mouse studies, let's say, uh, because you, you wanted to study it in humans. But also, I think you didn't want to study, for example, B cells that circulate in, in the blood. That's right. They're doing a very different thing to this process of the germinal center, which we can only observe within lymphoid tissues. Um, and while there are models for in vitro activation of B cells. If you, for example, harvest B cells from the blood and you can give them the right mix of cytokines, you can approximate some of these processes. Um, we really don't know how close or not this recapitulates the, the actual events in vivo. Uh, and I think the other reason that we wanted to sort of explore single cell methods with this as well was because this is such a dynamic process with cells cycling back and forth from different parts of the tissue, um, undergoing you know quite dynamic changes. Um, I think you know, the promise of single cell has always been this revealing unappreciated heterogeneity within systems, and that was something we wanted to explore as well. Um, and we're lucky enough to find some examples of. Right. So, so basically, you wanted to look at the the, the B cell. Um, development and evolution in their natural habitat. Exactly. And I think also moving beyond um, these sort of uh, stereotypical definitions of, of B-cell populations as well. Um, you know, I mentioned before that I'm fairly recently arrived at immunology. Uh, one thing that's really hard to get your head around when you first uh, start working in this field, uh, all the different cell surface markers that are used for flow cytometry. And uh, how they are the same between different studies or how they differ very subtly. And I think uh, understanding the relationships between facts identified populations 
across many different studies is, is very challenging. And so in some ways, me coming to this with uh, only uh, a little background allowed me to take a sort of data-driven approach to what are the populations we observe within the data set and, and uh, to then try and understand what they are, rather than the other way around, looking for what we expect and then trying to fit that into, onto the data set. As you mentioned, these uh, germinal centers where a lot of the action happens, they reside in the secondary uh, lymphoid organs. And so, um, yeah, I guess it's a bit harder to, to get hold of them in humans than in mice. You can just go around and like slay people and uh, extract their spleens. Yeah, exactly. This is the, uh, the challenge. One of the challenges of human immunology uh, and not quite as easy to uh, get these tissue samples. But um, the way that we approached it was uh, a fairly classical answer to this, this uh, question, though, which is to take human tonsils uh, from uh, children who are having routine tonsillectomies. Um, and there are two main reasons for that I can touch on in a moment. Um, but this is a, a sort of very easy, uh, easily accessible source of human tissue which is really representative of of, uh, of the immune system because these tonsils uh, essentially do the same role as the lymph nodes and spleen uh, throughout our body which are much more difficult to to obtain uh, from from healthy individuals um, and the other advantage of the of the tonsil system as well is that these uh, are young children and so their immune systems i don't know if uh, if I'm sure any parents listening will be able to attest that young children get sick a lot. So their immune systems are, are, are working all the time. And although they're not sick necessarily at the time of the, the procedure of the surgery, um, they are processing a lot of new pathogens all the time. So we get a really good active picture of what the immune system is capable of doing, which in other systems... Um, for example, from, from elderly patients uh, who we might obtain spleen or lymph nodes from, um, they typically be much less active and not give us that complete picture that we, we want to achieve with these single cell profiling. How hard was it to get hold of, of these uh, samples? Can you just walk into a clinic and say, you know, give me your tonsils? Uh, once, once you have the relationship with the, with the surgical team, that's more or less what happens. Um, so obviously we had to go through ethical, uh, you know, get ethics approval from, uh, the relevant bodies here in the UK. Um, but from there, it's quite a simple procedure because this tissue is, is going to be discarded anyway. They don't require it for any clinical diagnosis or, uh, other analysis. So it's literally going to go in the bin after the surgery so so typically it's a very straightforward process to get consent from the from the parents and the family and then and get the tissue from the from the surgeon um, and there's two main reasons that these patients actually are having a tonsillectomy as well which is kind of relevant um, one is that they've had tonsillitis sort of repeatedly uh, within a short period of time so they're just getting too sick from these repeated infections um, and, and another reason is that they're just obstructive. They obstruct the airway and can cause sleep apnea in these, in these young children. And I think this is an important point just to, to mention because we often get asked of how representative is this tissue of the normal immune system? Exactly, are, these, yeah. are these kids really healthy? 
Um, and uh, what we see is when we have these two different uh, types of patients, we've got an equal number between between those two, and we don't see any major differences between uh, them in the in their gene expression patterns, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is really reassuring to us that you know this is a a representative sample of of the uh, adaptive immune system. But can can you tell those two groups apart based on, for example, your single cell sequencing? Did you like if you literally color the uh, <laughs> your UMAP diagram by those um, batches, do, do you see a difference? Yeah, so we did do that. And, and no, we didn't. We didn't see, for example, any, you know, particular cluster or island of cells in the UMAP that were, were specific to a particular group of patients, which is reassuring. We already mentioned, or you mentioned that you did a single cell RNA sequencing, and and your motivation for that was that you really want to um, see that heterogeneity and and study that heterogeneity um, of the uh, of the B cells. Um, but also an interesting aspect of your study was that um, you use single cell RNA sequencing simultaneously for two purposes: so for for gene expression profiling, but also to understand what their um, B cell receptor sequences look like. So, can you can you talk about this um, the study design? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, as I as I alluded to earlier, some of our major questions that we were interested in asking were about the role of antibody class in B cell fate and function. So, do B cells that express a particular type of antibody? behave differently to B cells that express a different type of antibody. And to do this, we really need a single cell resolution of both their gene expression and their antibody that they were expressing and making. So we use the, the 10x genomics single cell platform, um, which I'm sure a lot of people will be familiar with, but it is basically a droplet based method to encapsulate single cells uh, in these uh, emulsion droplets, uh, and then barcode those single cells, um, barcode the RNA molecules in those single cells with a unique uh, barcode. And then from that, we can extract the gene expression information and then separately amplify the antibody genes to examine those sequences as well in a, in a linked but separate assay. So we're getting from each single cell the gene expression information. And for the B cells, we're also getting their antibody gene sequence. You did interesting analyses on um, on this uh, collected uh, data, like uh, phylogenetic analysis or RNA velocity analysis. But simply based on the, so I guess you you build these um, UMAP diagrams. Um, uh, maybe you can talk about what sort of simple, relatively simple analysis you did and whether you gain um, any insights just from from looking at the simple uh, single cell uh, like gene expression data. Sure. So um, we spent quite a lot of time working through this data. So anyone who's worked in single cell genomics of any sort will tell you that now the technology is so simple you can do the experiment in a couple of days and then we'll spend the next 12 months analyzing it. And so it's quite a lot of time working through this and figuring out the right quality control measures to put in place, uh, filtering out different, uh, using different methods to filter out multiplets, 
because when we do these droplet-based experiments, you can often get two cells um, in the same droplet that can appear as one. So we did quite a bit of work um, looking for those artifacts. But once we'd managed to clean up the data and process it and uh, start exploring it, we found um, quite a few interesting things. So I guess firstly, we found a lot of the things that we expected. We found the naive B cells that I talked about before. We found quite a lot of germinal center B cells, memory B cells, and plasma cells. Um, we also found had a lot of information as well from other immune populations in the tonsil, um, such as the different T cells, um, which especially a T follicular helper cell population, which is really important within the germinal center. Um, and we also found a lot of uh, some myeloid cells as well. But really most of our, our work is focused on the B cells. So I'll spend most of the time talking about that. So was that was that intentional? Uh, were you selecting? So I assume you did some kind of facts selection before before sequencing, and did you um, intentionally also select T cells, or were were they in, in the sample just by accident? So we we didn't do anything quite as fancy as a facts. Um, we we just did a, a FICOL gradient prep, which is a very standard way to enrich for mononuclear cells and particularly those from the immune system. So we essentially, we process the tissue and we enriched for the immune compartment. So we don't have any um, endothelial or epithelial populations in our data set, uh, which would be a whole bunch of different questions that would be really interesting in, in a separate study. Um, but we, we did want to include these non-B cell populations as well, because they are very important for the processes that the B cells undergo. And some of the analysis that we did in this paper was to look for the co-expression of ligand and receptor pairs between B cells and these other immune cell subsets to sort of tell us a little bit more about the sorts of communication that might be going on between these different, um, different types of cell. Um, but it was, I think, that part of the study, including these T cells, part of a more general, I guess, atlasing approach to this tissue, which had not yet been profiled by anyone else, um, that we thought it was a useful contribution to make to uh, to those studying these populations as well. So maybe you could you could explain what, what this atlasing approach means. I guess uh, atlasing approach is uh, sequence it all and see, and uh, it'll be useful to someone at some point, I think would be a, a very crude way to describe that. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of power to to that through studies like the Human Cell Atlas. Um, but we, we knew, I think there was partly a selfish reason that we wanted to see if there was this potential crosstalk between immune populations, but we also knew it would be valuable to, to collaborators of ours um, moving forward as well. When you try to classify these cells into B cells and T cells and various um, subtypes of B cells, um, how, like in practical terms, how easy is that to do? Is, is there an existing piece of software that will do that for you? Or do you have to go to Wikipedia and transcribe like different expressed uh, receptors <laughs> to, uh, to analyze it by hand? Uh, that is the second one is the way that I did it um, because when I started when I when I first generated these data sets um, you know one or not two years ago now uh, when I first started working on them 
these sort of automated classifiers were very much in their infancy. Um, for someone setting out on this path now, they've got so many more options available to them. And then there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot more data available and there are a lot more uh, prediction models that can classify the cell types for you. Um, I would say though that although I have not used these myself, I think you need to be slightly careful in the fact that if you have novel or unexpected populations in your own data set, how those might be processed by existing annotations um, would be something that you need to be very careful about. So I would always recommend maybe moving forward a two-prong approach. One, exploring some of these um, prediction methods uh, to, to save some of the heavy lifting for you to do this sort of broad categorization of B-cell, T-cell, macrophage, uh, endothelial cell, some of that heavy lifting for you, but then to really just explore and, and uh, subcluster away until you are satisfied that you haven't missed anything uh, that you can't explain because it's great to be able to explain what these clusters are but I think where it gets really exciting is where you find a, a little population that you don't know what it's called and and that can get a bit laborious after that of, uh, of googling different gene markers and and trying to figure out what they are um, but I think it's also where this sort of data-driven approach uh, is really um, best suited and really excels, I think, in, you know, we shouldn't try and put too many labels on these things sometimes. And I think this has been a, a major problem in my view in immunology, where any slightly newly classified population by, by cell surface markers is given a slightly new name. And uh, whether they actually are new or different is, you know, I think debatable. And one of the really interesting questions that I think our study sort of shines a light on in some examples is the difference between cell identity and cell state. You can have a lot of different states for a single cell type, which might appear very differently in these gene expression assays. Um, but how do you pro uh, approach that? I think is a, a slightly philosophical question for for people doing this these type of work. Is the distinction that cell identity is non-reversible versus cell state can sort of transition between like different states? Uh, that's how I would view it. So you could, I guess, a simple example would be activation of a of a of a B cell. You can go from a a naive B cell to and, and be activated. Um, I would say you're still a naive B cell. You're still a B cell that hasn't um, gone undergone any changes to its antibody genes. It's still antigen inexperienced in terms of its potential function. It may be being exposed to an antigen, but it has that hasn't had a a permanent effect on the on that B cell's identity. I would argue. But once you once you are if you are a B cell, once you're activated, you can't really go back, can you? You could. You could, oh, you could. Uh, that signal could be taken away and you could revert to uh, a basal state. I think basal may be a better word than naive in this context. Um, or you may die. So I guess that's a, another 
that's a, a different question perhaps um, but for for example maybe some of the i can give a, some more examples of the states that we observed um, within the memory b cell population which we focus on in quite some detail on in, the, in, in our paper um, we found a subcluster of cells that had a really strong enrichment for the heat shock protein response so lots of genes linked with that now we can't say absolutely what's going on with these cells but they have they're definitely doing something quite distinct from other memory b cells that doesn't appear to be related to their actual identity they may be undergoing some type of stress in the tissue or during the processing as well we can't exclude that um, and we also identified a subpopulation that had a, a strong interferon response um, so again this could just be related to the cytokines or uh, other microenvironmental micro cues that those B cells are experiencing rather than them necessarily being a distinct and separate lineage. And while you were classifying, you're, you're giving labels to at least the mainstream subpopulations of, of B cells. Um, was there much left? Was there anything that surprised you to that you didn't expect to see there? Yeah, so we found we found this one population which uh, we've we've labeled as a pre-germinal center B cell. And these cells um, firstly were naive in terms of their antibody repertoire. So they were expressing exclusively IgM and IgD, and they had not undergone any somatic hypermutation of their antibody genes. So we were able to say pretty confidently these are a naive population. Um, they did, however, show some evidence of starting to express some genes associated with the germinal center um, at very low levels, and they lacked some of the key canonical markers, though, of that process as well. So we sort of were getting hints that they might be starting to participate in that response. Um, uh, but that's a difficult thing to test experimentally, so we sort of tried to model that with some computational approaches, and namely uh, RNA velocity. Um, so for those who don't know, RNA velocity is a, uh, a new method of, sort of reconstructing pseudotime, pseudotemporal, events within a, a static snapshot picture that we have from a single cell experiment because we're only sampling the cells in our population at a, at a single time point we need to try and reconstruct the uh, potential for cells to move between different states and RNA velocity um, has a really really cool way of approaching this which is modeling the splicing rates between uh, exons and, and introns um, as a pre-mRNA versus mRNA molecules. And that I think that's a, a conversation for a whole other podcast um, for you, Roman. Um, but I, I think I'll just leave it at that and say that we we use this, this very cool method in the context of, of our B-cell, single-cell data sets to ask the question of whether these pre-germal center B-cells showed any directionality in these splicing dynamics that might suggest whether they were um, likely to be entering the germinal center. And we found that actually it was a pretty compelling 
result that they were transcriptionally at least showing a very strong directionality that they were transitioning away from the naive b-cell state into the germinal center state um really sort of i guess supporting our hypothesis based purely on the clustering first and foremost um whereas the rna velocity is really looking at it at a single cell level not relying on any of these cluster labels we can just see for each single cell is that cell more or less likely to be uh, moving towards other cellular populations in the data set um, so we thought that was quite convincing evidence and we also explored uh, other pseudotemporal methods and we found the same relationships but did you see any evidence that these weren't just a subpopulation uh, of of the GCs of the germinal center cells? Um, these weren't just cells that recently arrived in the germinal center, but this was a, like a truly discrete, separate uh, subpopulation. We we can't exclude that some of these cells may be present within a germinal center that they've only just arrived within it. We can't exclude that completely. Uh, I think what we can say is that this cluster lacks a lot of the major germinal center marker genes required for localization within the germinal center, and they're uh, known to mark these major cellular populations, um, and that they've not yet had any change to their antibody genes, and we find no evidence that they have expanded clonally or proliferated yet. We have another piece of evidence that wasn't included in this paper, but is now uh, currently under revision elsewhere, which was a collaboration with Omar Bayraktar's group at the Wellcome Sanger Institute in Cambridge, where they've been looking at spatial transcriptomics data sets of the human lymph node, so a, a similar model system to the tonsil. And we worked with them to generate a... Um, a reference single cell data set of all the different immune cell populations that we would expect within the lymph node um, based on our tonsil data sets and based on previously published lymph node data sets as well. And so we could look in the spatial assay where pre-germinal center cells are likely to be located. Um, and this is, again, a conversation for a whole other podcast in terms of the methodology behind this. But uh, what we found is that these pre-germinal center state was predicted to fall away from existing germinal centers, um, supporting the idea that they are most likely in the process of forming new germinal centers rather than joining existing ones. And you didn't stop at single cell sequencing. You, you also decided you needed to do bulk RNA sequencing. Uh, so what is the advantage of bulk RNA sequencing if you already have a single cell RNA sequencing data set? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, so I should I should clarify, when when uh, we say bulk RNA sequencing, what, what we did specifically was to use uh, the bulk antibody repertoire sequencing. So we were uh, able to uh, sequence the antibody genes of uh, hundreds of thousands of other B cells in bulk, so we don't have single cell resolution, but we can um, generate a large number of more sequences from the same tonsil samples, and specifically from different populations of B cells within those tonsil samples. So in this case, we don't have 
quite the, the same level of resolution or granularity. We had to limit it to naive B cells, germinal center B cells, memory, and plasma cells. Um, but what that really allowed us to do was to more confidently explore these clonal relationships at the single cell level um, by using the bulk. And I think this can be best explained if we think about this as a sampling problem. So in the context of one human tonsil, um, there can be anywhere up to or even more than 1 billion B cells present. And on average, a single cell assay, we are sequencing, you know, between two to 10,000 B cells from a given sample. Um, so we're not sampling a very large amount of the repertoire at all. So when we have a specific question about the relationships between different B cell clusters in our single cell data, so for example, this pre-germinal center population, we wanted to know, could we identify any relationships between those cells and other types of B cells? Um, and if we only had the single cell data, it would be very difficult, I think, to conclude that no relationships were present because we've only sampled such a small amount of the repertoire. But now when we can combine the single cell repertoire with the bulk data sets, uh, although we're still gonna, never going to get close to a, the full complement within the, the tonsil, um, we can add a lot more confidence to the relationships that we observe. And when we fail to observe a relationship as we did with the pre-germinal center state, where we didn't see their relationships with any other germinal center B cells or other populations, we can just add a huge amount more confidence to that process. Interesting. And can you talk uh, a little bit more about how exactly you um, integrated these two data sets and uh, yeah, basically how you went about analyzing, analyzing this data? Yeah, so we used uh, a lot of packages from the Imcantation uh, suite from Steve Kleinstein's group. Um, and it uh, really allows us to, uh, how should I say, so the, they're obviously generated through similar but quite different library approaches. So that required a little bit of standardization in terms of getting the sequences into the exactly comparable format between the bulk and the single cell assay. Uh, but from there, we could combine the antibody sequences into the same data frame and and work with them all as one. So we're now looking for each donor patient. We have a combined set of single cell and bulk sequences. And within that, we can identify the clonal relationships. To do that, um, there are a couple of main steps. So I talked at the very beginning of the podcast that we cast our mind back then to this sort of the VDJ recombination events that happen in the bone marrow. And this already generates a huge amount of diversity. So when a single B cell exits the bone marrow, they have a very unique combination of V, D and J genes. And they've also undergone a very unique recombination event, which dictates the junction region of the antibody gene. I won't describe exactly what that is, but this is an important part of this antibody sequence, which is going to be unique to 
uh, each B, uh, B cell clonotype. So firstly, to identify these relationships, we can separate or subset out every sequence that has the same V gene, the same J gene, and the same junction sequence. Um, and that means that we can sort of subset down to this is, these are potentially related clonally. And from there, we can um, use a, a distance-based metric to look for sequence similarity to further restrict to B cell sequences that are likely to have been derived from the same clone initially before expansion in the germinal center. Did you always know exactly where the sequence begins, where it ends? Is it because they're like quite short that they're, um, the, the transcript can be sequenced in, in full, or is it because the particular enrichment strategy that you used? Uh, yes, so we, we, we know where our sequence ends because it's an amplicon-based method. So we're using primers to amplify um, most, but not all, of the antibody genes. So with the part of the genes that we're amplifying, we're getting enough information to identify the variable genes at the 5' end and enough information to get the constant region gene or the subclass at the 3' end. But it's certainly not the full um, the full RNA sequence, but it's it's got all the important information. It's got the the V and J gene identities. It's got this junction region, um, which is where a lot of the important stuff happens, and it's got the constant region. And although the uh, amplification strategies are slightly different between the bulk and the single cell, uh, it's actually quite straightforward to to combine the two of them together because the important information. Is, is contained within both assays. Talk a little bit about how you did the, the phylogenetic analysis on those sequences. Yeah, so um, once we've subset out these uh, B cell sequences based on the V, J, and junction regions, and sort of done this distance-based uh, subsetting even further to identify predicted clones, um, we're able to use these really nice phylogenetic methods. Uh, the one that we used was called Alakazam, uh, which it sort of uh, looks at the mutation changes in the antibody genes to construct these phylogenetic lineage trees uh, and infer the likely events that have happened in that B cell's history based on what's observed in that static snapshot example. Um, it's a very difficult thing to work on, actually, because knowing what your ground truth is is almost impossible in this case. Uh, it's very hard to do a sanity check on a lot of these phylogenies in terms of which B cell actually came first. Uh, sometimes it will be very clear because you could have a, you know, if there's a single mutation that's different between one B cell sequence and another um, away from the germline sequence because we, we know what the germline sequence should be. Um, in that very simple case, we could say which one came first. But there are real limitations around um, when we get to much larger and more complex situations, which are typically what we observed, where we have many, many, many different mutations and we're only sampling a very small percentage of these clonal families. Um, 
So even for the, the largest clones, uh, we, had, we had some examples where we had several hundred sequences within a, a clonotype. But the majority of expanded clonal events we identify might have three to ten sequences. Um, and these are very heavily mutated. Uh, so it is sometimes quite difficult uh, to interpret. So instead, a lot of what we did was really looking for the relationships or the presence within these clonal expansion events between different types of B cells. So within an expanded clone, how often did we observe a germinal center B cell with a plasma blast? How often do we observe germinal center B cell with a memory B cell? Uh, and that can tell us something about the relationships uh, between them, given these large caveats around sampling depth uh, and reconstruction of these phylogenies. What do we mean when we say a, a clone? Because uh, so there is this um, activated cell that starts expanding. So we, we have all of its progeny, we could call that a clone, but also, if I understand correctly, it, it, and this is something you explained to me, and I was uh, I was confused about. I was an, under the impression that first they they mutate and only then they expand. But uh, what you explained to me is that that happens iteratively. So they they mutate a bit, they expand a bit, and and the whole cycle uh, repeat repeats itself. And so at each iteration, you have like a a subclone, right? So can you can you tell them apart? Can you say well, this is the ground zero clone, and these are the uh, the subclones. Yeah, theoretically, you could be able to do that if we were able to sequence every single cell in that in that tonsil. Uh, if we could capture the the, f the complete the complete repertoire, we might be able to do that, um, but we can't, unfortunately. Um, but it is a really, really good question about what is a clone. Uh, and there's lots of different definitions to that. For me, I define a clone or clonotype. Clonotype might be a more accurate description, actually, of the, the ideas that I'm, I'm discussing. Uh, a clonotype would be that B cell that has exited the bone marrow and has undergone that recombination event and is theoretically at that moment unique, a unique clonotype. From there, it could enter a germinal center reaction and expand and proliferate and generate many, many more subclones, um, which are still part of that clonotype or clone to use the broad sense of the word. Um, now, some of those subclones, those lineages might be a dead end they might acquire a harmful mutation in their antibody gene. That means that they can't be selected for positively and they'll apoptose and die. So that could be a, a dead end to that lineage. Um, but I think one of the things that we discussed at length, I think, before was that that founding member of that clone may no longer exist because it has proliferated and changed and may have been selected against because it doesn't have as high affinity as its subclones 
as its daughter cells now have. Um, so yeah, there's lots of really interesting ideas around that, um, but we sort of always need to keep these these caveats about sampling static snapshots in time in the back of our heads while we're looking at these questions. And so, from what I understand, you have um, you you can look at these um, uh, sequence cells at two levels. So at a coarse level, you have there's just clusters, these clones, or what you roughly identify as, as clones. But then you can be more detailed in within a clone, you can build a, a phylogenetic tree. Um, and so what kind of um, what kind of things that phylogenetic tree allows you to see that just looking at a, at a clone without any relationship uh, doesn't. So I think you, you mentioned, for example, looking whether like different um, uh, types or classes coexist in in the same clone, but th mm -hmm. that doesn't require a tree, right? That that can be done just looking uh, based on on looking at the cluster at at a clone. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I think you can when you are able to reconstruct a large clone, uh, it can get really interesting um, when you can see all where these changes in antibody class might be associated with an expansion event. This can really be informative. So um, often you might see that, that you have a few members of the clone that are, are, are one class, say IgM, and then you detect one clone, which is IgG, and then suddenly it's expanded massively. Really large, like, you know, you've detected a lot of IgG subclones from that point. Um, in the context of our study, we didn't explore this these sort of ideas very much, partly because of this issue of depth, partly because these kind of questions are most relevant when studying an antigen-specific response. Um, so what you're really looking for in those cases are to identify um, if we take coronavirus as an example, if we wanted to see uh, the type of B cell response to to SARS-CoV-2, we would sequence, we would uh, sort out all the SARS-CoV-2 specific B cells and construct these lineages, and you would be able to track through that phylogenetic history the acquisition of different mutations. Uh, and then you could go and clone those sequences to test how that affects the affinity of those B of B cells to the coronavirus. And that can tell you a lot about the selection and uh, B cell response. Um, so I just give that as an example of the sort of thing where these phylogenetic approaches are most powerful. Uh, it's not something that we explored very much ourselves, though, partly because these kids don't have a specific antigen that they're responding to at that time. When we get this tissue, they're probably responding to a thousand different things at once, um, and we can't, with any confidence, predict even what these lineage trees might be uh, linked to. And... Uh we alluded to, to the question whether multiple classes of B cells can coexist 
in a inside a clone and that basically if i understand correctly that boils down to asking whether an activated cell already knows what kind of class it will result into or it will expand into because originally it's still a igm igd cell right but is it is it the case that once it starts expanding uh, all like at some point everything switches to let's say iga or ige or is it rather the case that uh, some of its children can become iga some can become IgG, I think you tried to answer that question. So how did you uh, investigate that? Yeah, yeah, no, so that's a, that's a great question. This is actually one of, relates to one of the cool things that we found about how B cells might be switching their antibodies. So the, the current paradigm is that you have your IgM B cell and that is activated and goes into the germinal center. And once it's in the germinal center, it can get the right signals to switch to an isotype. Whether there's any predetermination in that, as you sort of uh, seem to hypothesize in, in the way you ask the question, uh, I don't know if there's any evidence for that yet, but um, the, the current model is that they would switch within the germinal center. But what we actually found was in this pre-germinal center population that seems to be committed to forming the germinal center, that these are the cells that seem to be primed to, to do this process. They seem to be about to undergo that switching event either before or at exactly the same time they form a germinal center reaction, um, which sort of has important implications to how they behave in the germinal center. That sort of gets away from your question a little bit. So, And just to make sure I understand your, uh, your answer that you gave so far, so... Um, are you saying, because a germinal center is not formed by a single activated cell, right? There are multiple cells that form a germinal center. Well, I think I think it's possible it could come from a single cell, but that early, early process is, is not well understood um, because that's, that's a very difficult thing to track in vivo, especially in human, yeah. But at least it can be formed by multiple cells. I think it's possible to form from either one or multiple cells, yeah. And is your claim that all of these cells that um, join together, uh, are, are you saying they com are committed to the same uh, class, or, or what, what exactly is your claim? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. Um, I think. I, I think there's yeah two two scenarios. If we take the one that there are multiple cells forming a germinal center at the same time, I think. If our model is correct and that class switching occurs before the germinal center, they would, each one of those cells would make a decision um, and switch or not. Uh, I don't think they would do it together necessarily. They might coincidentally because they're receiving sim similar signals, um, but I, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that they absolutely would do exactly the same thing. So your claim is that they um, commit to a switching not much later than forming a journal center. Is, is that correct? That's that's what our evidence suggests. Um, there, and this is also supported by work in the mouse, where they are able to do 
you know, much more fine grained mechanistic studies of the time course of these events. Um, so some of that's already been published and some of it will be published soon from, uh, from other labs. Um, but it, what we think we've found is the cell state that matches these observations in the mouse. Um, that we found this population in human where this switching event can happen before a germinal center forms and then within the germinal center i mean this doesn't preclude further switching okay from happening so there can be further switching there can there can be further switching and include including within the same uh clone within the same clone exactly so so the way in which that happens i um i didn't really describe the mechanism of this class switch combination but it is essentially, um, if we imagine the uh, the locus of, of the immunoglobulin gene, we essentially have all these class of genes in a linear organization where we have IgM and IgD at the five prime end. And then we have downstream of that, all the rest of the IgGs, IgA and IgE in a particular order. When we switch from IgM to one of the other classes, those IgM genes are deleted. So that can't go back. So if we switch from IgM to IgG1, we cut out IgM, we'll also lose IgD, and we'll also lose IgG3, because that happens to be upstream of IgG1. So from that point, a B cell could switch again. It could switch from IgG1 to another class that's downstream. It can't go back because now those genes are gone, but it could switch to IgA1 or IgA2 or something else. And in theory, this could happen multiple times within a single clonotype or clone family. Um, now, whether this is all happening in a single uh, a single linear fashion, if you like, where let's say a B cell is activated, it becomes a pre-germinal B cell, that primes it to switch, it then forms a germinal center, and then those subsequent switching events occur within that same germinal center, or feasibly that that germinal center generates some memory B cells those memory B cells exit, they can then be reactivated and form a new germinal center via the pre-germinal center stage. And that's where the class switching occurs. And it could occur many, many times in that fashion. Well, not that many, right? Because every time you, you chop off uh, <laughs> further and further yeah. your, your DNA, so there's- That's a... right, that's right. And the, there is definitely a, a hierarchy in the manner in which you switch from one class to another, one isotype to another. So in some situations, you're probably more likely to do, you know, G1 to G2 than you would be to G1 to A1, for example. Um, I should be very clear that this is very speculative and we don't have a lot of evidence for actually how this might happen in the context of sequential switching. Um, and it is, again, very difficult to, to make some of these conclusions from our experiments because we have 
basically emulsified, you know, homogenized this tissue into a single cell suspension. So we don't have any information about individual germinal centers. What we kind of would really need to know is to be looking at these single cell level with the spatial resolution as well with the antibody genes to say, right, here's one germinal center that's comprised of uh, clones one, two, three, and four. Uh, maybe it would only be a single clone. There's some evidence that that's the case. Um, but we could really say, okay, this clone is um, comprising this entire germinal center and this other germinal center seems to be related to that. How are those two related? Has there been a class switch event within those germinal centers or before those germinal centers? You know, these are sort of, I guess, the the dream experiments that you might like to be able to to uh, to look at. But still, I, I think this is a this was a very good explanation, and uh, it makes it clear that these class switching events they are to be taken seriously. It's not like just a gene expression change that a cell can oscillate between. Uh, as you say, it can never go back if it deleted yeah. that, uh, that part of its, uh, its chromosome. Just, just to make it really clear uh, for, for myself, first of all, the claim then that the first event, the first class switch event, right, and it, it now has a, a weight because, as I said, it's not to be taken lightly. It's, uh, it's the first step out of a finite possibly finite number of, of steps. And so that first step um, is at least sometimes taken before arriving at the germinal center or forming a germinal center. Yeah, that that's currently our model uh, as well as some other people's model, but uh, it's certainly needs a lot more testing um, experimentally. But I think, I think it makes a lot of sense given what we given our data set and what other people see in, in experimental mouse models. So continuing our discussion about uh, classes um, of, of uh, BSL receptors, um, there is this notion that a class is um, associated with the specificity of the receptor. Um, and so the, the direction is interesting. So pres presumably once the... Um, once the receptor becomes very specific, maybe it switches, for example, from IgM to IgG, and if it's not very specific, it stays at uh, IgM, but there are also alternative explanations. And wh what did you find um, in your study? Yeah, so this has been um, a longstanding question in the field because there have been observations made for quite a long time that if you look at IgM antibodies, um, these tend to be lower affinity than switched antibodies, so IgG or IgA, um, which are much higher in their affinity. Um, but we sort of found when we were reading a lot of these old papers using bulk RNA sequencing, they would take... Um, IgM B cells and compare them to IgG B cells. But this sort of is a bit of a problem about generalization. So IgM tends to be lower affinity, but you can have very high affinity IgM. And IgG tends to have high affinity, but can also have low affinity as well, depending on um, what you're looking at. So past studies had sort of done these comparisons of comparing. IgM with IgG B cells, start seeing if they were different in some functional way. 
and they would find a lot of differences. But we were sort of wondering, could that be uh, related to their, is that related to their affinity or is that related to their class? Um, and that's kind of important because when this class switching occurs, is that dictating their response or is their response purely dictated by the affinity that they acquire throughout that process? If the response is dictated by that class switching, then that highlights that early pre-germal center event as a really pivotal moment in a B cell's uh, trajectory. Maybe you could explain, because uh, it is a bit counterintuitive because the cell doesn't know in advance what affinity it, w it will be able uh, to acquire. So the natural direction seems to be, well, it mutates if it achieves a good af affinity, it can, it can then switch to IgG, let's say. But how would the opposite direction work mechanistically? So this kind of comes a little bit around to the temporal events and sort of multiple waves of this process occurring during an infection. Um, and generally it is, it is known that early on in an infection, you will get a large wave of IgM first before you start to produce this high affinity IgG. So it probably relates to needing some flexibility in to provide these different things at different stages. So initially, uh, when you're responding to infection, you want to make a lot of IgM, you want to make a lot of antibody. And if it's not that high affinity, it doesn't matter so much. You just want to be able to make some and start trying to have an effect. In the meantime, you can be forming that high affinity response in the germinal center, which takes a little bit more time, a few days perhaps. Um, and uh, so I guess if you can have some cells that are entering this process that are remaining unswitched, they can go in, do a little bit, but then come out fairly quickly and do have a role without acquiring high affinity. Um, and in the meantime, some other cells have switched and they're spending longer in the germinal center and then they come out maybe slightly later, but they're more efficient and more effective. Right. So you're saying that those that come out earlier, they don't acquire because they spend less time mutating and evolving. They acquire maybe lesser affinity and they also don't class switch. And it's the 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 absence of class switching that determines that they are going to exit earlier? That's that's what we found evidence for in our gene expression analysis. So we were able to compare with B cells within the germinal center and comparing, um, we, we limited our analysis to just high affinity B cells um, based on their mutation signatures. Uh, and when we compared highly mutated or high affinity B cells with expressing IgM, and those expressing IgG, we found that those expressing IgG had more expression of uh, receptors associated with remaining in the germinal center. So it seemed like IgM would be more likely to exit and leave the germinal center than the switched B cells would be able to. I think there are other explanations for how, how this might happen, but I think by controlling for that affinity between the B cells we're doing the analysis from, we can remove that a little bit from the equation 
um, because it certainly is a confounding factor. If you just take all all B cells and compare IgM with IgG B cells, you see enormous differences in a whole lot of different genes. Um, but if you take high affinity and low affinity B cells and do a gene expression analysis, you see the same gene expression changes occurring. So that IgM versus IgG comparison is really confounded by high versus low affinity. So one of the points of difference of our analysis has been uh, accounting for that confounding influence and only comparing high affinity with high affinity. And uh, by affinity, because you can't measure direct affinity, as a proxy, you use just the amount of mutation it acquired. Exactly. Um, which is unfortunately is, is all we had available within our own data set. But what we were able to do was to use some experimental data from, uh, from a mouse study, actually. So this uh, study, what they did, they uh, had a mouse and they could expose it to a very specific model antigen. Um, hen egg lysosome induces a fantastic immune response and then they were able to sort for germinal center B cells that had a high affinity or a low affinity to that antigen and um, did RNA sequencing to compare the signatures of those B cells. So what I did was I, I took those gene expression signatures and, and put them onto our human germinal center B cells and then compared for B cells with a high level of uh, somatic hype mutation of their antibody genes, did they have a high uh, signature score for affinity based on these studies? And we saw a pretty good correlation actually that supported our use of the mutation level as a, as a proxy for affinity. Of course, in an ideal world, we would now combine these same experiments with labeling for the antigens um, through a, a site-seek or similar labeling approach, which is now technologically much more possible than it was three years ago, four years ago when we started the study. Is that known or, or do you have any, can, can you speculate? Um, so what would be the point what motivation do B cells have to, to switch or not switch? So assuming there is something that primes a B cell to remain uh, longer uh, and mutate more in the germinal center or remain less and exit earlier, um, why would it choose one form of the antibody in one case and a different for, form, a different class in the other case? Um, so, so this probably relates to the microenvironment that that event is incurring in. So the cytokines that the B cell is experiencing. So um, for example, IgA really dominates class switching in mucosal tissues like the gut and the airway. And this is probably because TGF beta is one of the main uh, to my understanding, TGF beta is important to drive that process, and there's more of it there in those tissues. Um, so, I think that's what's partly dictating it is the context of the tissue. But that would be the late switching, right? That would be the, the switching long after it exited the germinal center and arrived at the mucosal. No, I think that could happen in that would happen in the in the in those tissues. 
for example, in the gut, there are lymphoid structures. Okay. So it, it wouldn't actually leave the gut, it would stay in the gut. So it wouldn't go from, from the gut to the tonsil. No, no. It, uh, so you can have uh, local immune responses in the gut. There are these uh, either through the mesenteric lymph nodes that drain quite a lot with the gut um, or with um, these structures called Peyer's patches, uh, which are essentially germinal center-like organized structures. Um, that form within the gut tissue to create these responses. Okay, but if if we talk specifically about um, you know exiting early and keeping IgM versus remaining for longer mm-hmm. and and keeping uh, IgG, so presumably those cells would be in a similar environment. Yes, yeah. right. They would just the difference is how how much time they spend in the germinal center and then also the class of their antibodies. So why would there be a correlation between the two? So the other angle on this relates to the type of B cells that are made by the germinal center as well. So the memory B cells or the plasma cells. Um, And these both arise from the germinal center generally. Um, And in general as well, memory B cells tend to be IgM and plasma cells tend to be IgG or switched. So they're not IgM. So again, the same questions about affinity come up around these two cellular populations. Um, So they also do quite different roles. So plasma cells, their primary role is just to secrete antibody at high amounts. They are terminally differentiated. They can never go back to the germinal center. They are fixed, making that one type of antibody from now on and they will often go to the bone marrow and reside there and they can be just they'll just be pumping out their antibody for the rest of their life and they can live for a very long time memory b cells on the other hand are not doing that they're just hanging around ready to be reactivated upon a secondary infection by that same virus or bacteria or whatever it might be Now, where this could come to answer your question is that these memory B cells can then participate in the germinal center reaction again to improve their affinity. So they already have some level of affinity to to the pathogen. But it might be that in a secondary infection case, you you need a, a stronger affinity, you need a better response, or maybe the pathogen has changed, maybe it's evolved, and now your initial recognition is not quite as good, uh, and you want to improve on that. So that memory B cell will be activated and enter the germinal center reaction again to acquire more affinity. So obviously, that's that's a point at which it could undergo class switching, to go from IgM to IgG. Now, if we were to think about have an IgM, M versus IgG memory B cell, an IgG cell that's already switched has less room to move. It has already cut out a couple of its options for the type of antibody that it could make. So if it switched to IgG1, it might have only lost IgG3 that it can now produce. But in some contexts, IgG3 could be really useful. Um, maybe for that type of pathogen, that's a more effective, uh, you know, response. 
um, if it had switched further to you know IgG2, now it's lost you know G1, G3, and A1. If it's gone all the way to A2, it can't switch at all. It's fixed. It can't do anything more in that area to improve itself. Um, so actually, by biasing memory B cells towards that IgM state, you probably allow more flexibility in that secondary response, which is probably what you want. Um, a lot of that is very speculative, um, I should say, but we do find some evidence in our, in our analysis that IgM B cells in the germinal center uh, are less likely to express plasmablast-specific transcription factors, so it would be less likely to differentiate into the form and remain as memory B cells. Um, and we also saw that um, when we had a, a deep dive into memory B cells and we could identify the pre-germinal pre -germinal center state of the memory B cells that seem to be getting ready for the secondary activation, that the IgM cells were more likely to be primed to go undergo that switching event um, as part of that response. It's it's a very good point. It's a good point. Um, and did you did you also discover anything interesting about subclasses? So not just IgG versus IgM, but IgG one versus IgG three, as you mentioned. Yeah, we we looked. Uh, we really looked um, quite a lot to identify if there were specific. Uh, subclass specific effects and we we didn't find any really convincing evidence that there was um, there have been studies published in the past that have identified some differences for example between IgG4 and IgG1 B cells um, we didn't actually didn't get any IgG4 B cells in our, in our samples because they're very very rare but um, amongst all the other subclasses, there were very few significant effects. And effects in terms of uh, gene expression or effects in terms of uh, specificity? Uh, gene expression. Um, there we do, you do see uh, one interesting feature about the B cell repertoire relating to specificity and, and affinity is that when you move through the locus, um, because there's this sequential switching that can happen where you go from IgM to one, to another, to another. As you move through that locus from five prime to three prime, you see increased affinity because the B cells that have switched to the very terminal isotype have likely gone through many, many more rounds of selection than those that have just undergone to the first one. So there are differences in, with that aspect um, for sure. Um, but the only, and we also look between IgG B cells and IgA B cells. Um, as I've talked a little bit about, there are differences in their distribution throughout the body, um, but we found very few differences between them in the tonsil. Um, one interesting example, though, was the gene CLEC16A, which has been linked with a IgA-specific immunodeficiency. In, uh, in human patients. And we found that that was more expressed significantly in IgA-specific B cells in the germinal center, um, which is a really interesting idea to, uh, uh, to, to follow up on, I think. By the way, while you were talking, it occurred to me, do we know if when doing class switching, when chopping all those 
pieces of DNA, maybe it always does it one by one, or can it can it jump and can it cut uh, multiple segments at the same time? Yes, you can jump multiple genes at once, and often that's what will happen. It is a difficult thing to quantify how much either of these processes do or don't occur in a given response, but there is evidence for 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 all scenarios on that front. You can. I th- well, I say that I'm pretty sure that there's evidence that you can switch to the very last isotype directly to go from IgM to IgA2, but I suspect that it is very rare, and there is there is definitely evidence that the distance, um, as well as many other factors to do with the gene regulation at that site, will influence it, um, because class switching to which to different isotypes is dictated by this non-coding transcription that occurs from these intergenic promoters at the locus. So each uh, isotype has a uh, intergenic promoter that is transcribed. And when it's transcribed, it, it sort of opens up, the, the model is it opens up the chromatin around that site and allows the machinery to get in there and, and, and do the recombination. Um, at these particular recombination signal sites. Um, but it's a really very, uh, it's an amazing locus, actually. It's very, uh, very cool. Are there any other um, either findings or just interesting um, aspects um, to your paper that you'd like to discuss? Um, I mean, I think we had lots of, lots of too many things to include in this paper and keep a cohesive narrative I think uh, this is probably more of a general comment than anything about the science, but I think uh, it, it's a real challenge with this type of work to 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 tell the story in a way that the journals require you to do it and at the same time uh, present all of the data at once. Uh, so we've ended up with so many different little tidbits of information and, and ideas that emerge from these large data sets that we could spend a lot of time just going on and on and on about anything you could share without a fear of being scooped. Uh, well, there was there was one uh, there's one interesting population that we don't know what they're doing, and if anyone wants to look into them further, I really very much welcome it. Um, so we found within the Germinal Center a population of of B cells um, that we labeled FCRL3 high Germinal Center B cells, and they were characterized by the expression of this FCRL3 and FCRL2. Um, which are these surface ligand receptors um, and are associated with inhibited B-cell receptor signaling. So the uh, inhibited antibody receptor signaling, which is a little counterintuitive for in the, in the germinal center because you must require active signaling to, to remain there. So signaling meaning that when a, a receptor finds its antigen, it calls back to, to the to the cell and, and tells reports about that. Exactly. And we found that this population also expressed a lot of other receptors, genes associated with inhibited, inhibitory signaling of the, of the B-cell receptor. But conversely, these cells had very high mutation levels, so probably, quite possibly, high affinity to their antigen. They were part of very large clonal expansion events so they're not a dying dead end of a of a clonotype. 
but perhaps also conversely, they're almost exclusively IgM. They're unswitched. Uh, and we were able to validate by flow cytometry that the expression of FCRL3 on the surface of, of these B cells was much more associated with unswitched IgM B cells. Um, so this is a, a really interesting population that and we, we refrain from giving them any descriptive name because we ultimately don't know what they're doing or what they might be doing. Uh, but we did also identify a similar state of memory B cell. So this is again back to that question of identity versus cell state. And this seems to be a uh, cellular state that can occur across different B cell lineages. What potential functional importance that has or not, we, we really don't know. Um, we've got a few hypotheses, but we're sort of looking more into that at the moment. Well, Hamish, uh, thanks for, for your time and thanks for educating us about uh, immunology and, and about your paper. Oh, thanks so much. I, I hope uh, I hope you know a little bit more about B-cells, understand some of it uh, a bit better, but uh, I really appreciate the chance to, to share my research with you and your listeners. Mm-hmm.